Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Good morning, beautiful people. Please tune in to this incredible discussion that highlights Julian Assange. I spoke with three activists, Mike Miccioli, Susan McLucas, and Paula Ayacella. Julian Assange is a political prisoner, a prolific publisher, and is the founder of the organization WikiLeaks. Please visit AssangeDefense.org for more details on any of the developments involving him. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the show. Welcome to Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum, beautiful people. I'm your host, Kiko. I'm in the presence of three honorable guests this afternoon. They're going to talk to a very um, important issue and speak to that for the rest of the audience. Mike Miccioli is a Harvard University Class of 2022 graduate. Paula Ayacella is a Unity for J Free Assange activist and organizer. And Susan McLucas is a Boston Peace organizer and activist. Welcome to the show, y'all, and thanks for accepting my invitation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's such an urgent matter. And we organized this relatively quickly, considering the circumstances and everything. Um, we, I had a, an emergency actually last night, but I was saying to myself, I'm going to keep the interview intact. I'm not going to not do the interview. And we're all here today smiling in front of each other. And so hopefully we can inform the public of this important issue of Julian Assange. Um, can Mike... Paula and Susan kind of give a few sentences to the audience as far as who you are, um, what got you into activist work, what brought you um, into this sphere when it comes to bringing consciousness to the people when it comes to these issues? Uh, I'll start. My name's Mike. I am, I guess I originally got involved in student activism as an undergrad at Harvard uh, with uh, co-founding the organization Harvard Students for Bernie Sanders for his 2020 campaign run, and then uh, continued to do work with groups like the Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Committee and Harvard YDSA, a democratic socialist organization. Um, and then I guess I just personally had an interest uh, in Assange's uh, case for a while, and so I helped to organize a demonstration against uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland when he was speaking at Harvard for our commencement this past spring, um, because he's leading the prosecution against Julian Assange. Uh, so I, I guess that's kind of my background, and I'm currently a PhD student at UChicago. Again, congratulations. Paula? Yes, I'm uh, from New Hampshire. I came late in life to activism. I started becoming more active in the anti-war movement here on the East Coast. Um, I followed Julian Assange loosely. I didn't know much about WikiLeaks, just the basics. And we all followed him on Twitter because he was such a great source of international news. He was quite a leader uh, in 2018. They silenced him. And that I found that shocking. How could they take such a prominent voice and just wipe him off the internet? And it made me mad. 
And so I joined a group that was forming called Unity for Jay. Uh, I worked hard on that. I was one of the admins. I learned activism. I brought my art to, I bring my art to it and I've learned to write because of everything that's involved in fighting for this movement. Um, I now am a co-organizer on the Boston group, the Boston Area Assange Defense, which is part of a branch of the Assange Defense National Committee. And I also am one of the primary organizers on in DC Action for Assange, where we have to put our attention now. As uh, Mike said, it's um, we just need the Attorney General to drop the charges on this. There's, uh, um, it just needs to happen. So that's where we are right now. We're uh, forming a uh, organizing a big action October eighth. Um, in solidarity with Stella Morris's uh, UK surround uh, parliament in London. And so presently we're organizing for that. And thanks for having us on. Absolutely. And Susan? To Hi, I'm Susan McLucas, uh, based around Boston. And um, I've, I guess I got started in activism in college when we were all fighting against the Vietnam War. And it just got to be a habit one thing and another, and then trying to shut down Seabrook nuclear plant and um, trying to shut down the CIA, figure out who killed Kennedy. Um, did a lot of work for um, Chelsea Manning and that uh, led very seamlessly into working for Julian Assange. When Chelsea Manning was released from prison, I had a big party and we celebrated and raised some money for her. And it was like the first thing I've ever worked for that actually happened. And it was such a thrill. We hope we have such a party soon for Julian. Mm -hmm. I absolutely do too. That's, that's all we can hope for, right? And if we keep this going, this information, we're really combating information from lots of different angles. And we can get kind of get into that. Um, but I do want to kind of start with people who may not know who Julian Assange is. And um, anyone can kind of, I guess this question can be directed towards anybody as far as how would you describe Julian Assange to someone who has never heard of him before and the importance of WikiLeaks? And that can go for anybody. Oh yeah, it's such a, there's so much to cover, but mm -hmm. I guess the basics are Julian Assange is an Australian. Um, he um, majored in physics and he was a computer programmer um, and he developed an international nonprofit publishing organization called WikiLeaks in 2006 and that was uh, created in Iceland. Um, so there, the Espionage Act has him um, uh, being charged under the Espionage Act which should only be for an American but he's, people have to remember he's Australian and they try to paint him as a hacker. He's a, a publisher and a journalist. He's written several books. Mm -hmm. um, he's uh, a brilliant man. Um, of course, they're, they, they're not afraid of people that aren't brilliant, that aren't leaders. So I would say that the governments um, around the world are afraid of him because he developed something that can bring them down. Uh, stop the wars and bring truth to light about uh, criminal activity in the government. So you can see why why they are they have targeted him, and why he's in prison right now. Um, 
I've probably skipped a lot of the basics as Susan can fill in on that. No, you're fine. <laughs> so in uh, 2010 and 11, he published a whole lot of secret documents that uh, really angered the United States. The most famous one uh, you can still see on the internet at collateralmurder.com. It shows uh, American soldiers killing uh, Iraqi citizens in 2007, I think it was, from a helicopter and having a good old time. And it's all very official. They ask for permission and they get permission to engage, as they say, meaning slaughter the people. And they killed 12 people, including the Good Samaritan who came along to rescue the wounded. And so um, this was classified because the government doesn't want to look bad. But uh, Julian Assange said that uh, wars are started by lies and peace can be started by truth. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he was trying to do. He stuck his neck out and said, I'm probably going to get in trouble. And the biggest country in the world, most powerful people are not going to like this, but uh, we have to stop these wars. And so get this information out here mm -hmm. and he's suffering the consequences now and i would just add that although uh, his charges are currently for information that he published in uh in iraq that susan mentioned and also in afghanistan the afghan diaries uh he published lots of evidence of underreporting of civilian deaths in afghanistan but he's really quite a prolific publisher and he's published everything from, you know, uh, evidence of abuse in Guantanamo Bay to uh, evidence of corruption in the DNC in 2016 uh, to all sorts of different countries. He's, uh, I guess, uncovered uh, surveillance that private companies were doing on uh, civilians in Russia alongside their government. He's uh, a lot of uh, revelations that he published led to uprisings in Tunisia in 2011, which led to a lot of the Arab Spring. And um, he's really kind of uh, exposed corruption in all sorts of different governments, but the US only likes to focus on the corruption that he's exposed in their government to try and paint him as some sort of foreign agent. Mm -hmm. And Mike, kind of what you were speaking to, I was looking over it last night, I've read quite a few chapters in this book called the WikiLeaks files. I'm actually going to link it to the episode description. And I wanted to get back to a point of what uh, Susan mentioned before. We talked a little bit about some of these atrocities that we pointed out. Um, is that collateral murder? Is that part of the consortium news um, published library archive that Paula sent me where they had that 40 minute movie? Was that the clip that you were talking about? Did that come from that movie? Uh, yes, Kiko. In that movie, that was Juan Passarelli's, uh, I think that was a 2020 film that he created uh, called The War on Journalism, um, The Case of Julian Assange. Boston presented that in mm -hmm. uh, last year in October. And he does show clips. There are clips from the collateral murder in that film. It's and, a good, great film. It's a great overview. In 40 minutes, they cover so much of the case. Yes, and I will also be link, linking that to the episode description because I think for a lot of people, um, and I don't want to accuse anyone like the populace, I know that the tendencies in our populace in this headline-driven world and this soundbite-driven world, 
But I think when they see this visual image and just these moving images of, I, I, you can't even really do anything but, you know, be angry, cry about it. Um, there's just so many emotions you get when you see stuff like that. And you start to question, where do you even start when it comes to, um, if this is happening, what's happened before they published this WikiLeaks? You know, what what else is going on besides what WikiLeaks is showing us, which is substantial information? I mean, I can't believe that WikiLeaks is almost a library um, within the journalistic space. It's so, it should be the standard for any sort of independent journalism in the world. But okay. instead, it, it, it's being basically... Um, put aside and just, you know, let, led to basically not survive at all, which is something that I think is um, interesting, considering that if I read this right, they've been accurate on pretty much all their descriptions, all their news stories. And I think of these, quote unquote, legitimate news medias like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And I don't know if they can say that they have a 100% track record when it comes to not telling the truth. And I just think that it's crazy that um, an agency like this is being under attack. And and the public seems more or less complicit with it because the government and the news is telling us that that's okay because they're basically on the outside. They're not part of us, so they're not legitimate. Can someone speak to that? How is WikiLeaks delegitimized when they you could make the easy argument that they should be the journalistic standard. How did we change that narrative? Well, it's true. They have never had to retract anything that they've said. And even the government, when they were um, doing their hearings against uh, Assange, would have been the perfect time to mention if they had any evidence that the uh, releases that he made actually hurt U.S. agents. And they didn't. In fact, they have specifically said that that wasn't true. But still, um, I think the smears that they succeeded in getting uh, attached to him have made a lot of people just figure, well, he's not a nice guy, so mm -hmm. don't worry about what happens to him. Or I don't know, I, I scratch my head wondering how, how it's possible because it's just so obvious that he shouldn't be in prison awaiting extradition to face a 175-year mm -hmm. term. We've, you know, written and called uh, President Biden and Merrick Garland, and I don't get how they're not following Obama's example. He wasn't great on a lot of things, but at least he had the sense to say, mm -hmm. we can't really prosecute Julian Assange because we'd have to prosecute the New York Times and all the other journalists at the same time. And, um, but Biden came in and I don't know, he just said, oh, well, if it's good enough for Trump, let's just go along. It's, mm -hmm. I really don't get yep. it. I thought, you know, he's he supposedly trying to say he's so much better than Trump, but he's not showing it. <laughs> Does mm -hmm. anyone else want to kind of uh, speak about the journalistic integrity of WikiLeaks and versus what we've basically been force fed all these years as what are supposed to be the legitimate sources of information? Yeah, Kiko, you're right that um, WikiLeaks functions differently than uh, other journalistic outlets in that they've tried to demonize them as not uh, 
that he shouldn't be recognized as an actual journalist. And um, I think that's because the more mainstream news outlets often uh, they promote the ideology of the United States and its ruling class and uh, intentionally try and promote its foreign policy. So they'll even, you know, run certain stories by the State Department, you know, ask for approval. If they can publish certain things, they'll usually take comments from uh, government officials without question and kind of just take their word for a lot of different things. And WikiLeaks uh, has really kind of acted a lot differently. As you said, they should be kind of setting the standard for what a journalist should look like and what a, a media outlet should look like. And I think that a lot of people in the more, you know, established corporate media do try and demonize Assange because they realize that he's doing a lot more important and significant work than they are. I mean, if you just look at how many groundbreaking stories Assange has uh, been a part of in his career. It's, you know, something that most of the people working in mainstream media won't ever, you know, have a, a story that large, let alone that many. So um, I think that in order to maintain their their connections with a lot of their sources and maintain access, they have to kind of uh, be very civil with uh, the U.S. government. And so they're kind of jealous of Assange in a way because he has a lot more uh, freedom to to publish what he wants to. Absolutely. Paula, would you like to add anything um, in this angle? I would. I'd like to back up to 2010, the same media that Mike is talking about that now smeared him for a decade. Back in 2010, um, he had partners, the partners that helped him publish the work. He It wasn't just WikiLeaks. And there was The Guardian, The New York Times, the uh, El Pia Paez. There, there were several. There's Spiegel. Der Spiegel. Der Spiegel. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, so they all were helping with that. But when it came down to redaction time, they were frustrated with Julian uh, taking his time to redact. So they kind of left him to do it by himself. So he stayed up for I don't know how long making redactions. And um, and then they turn around and that's one of the things they smear him on that he dumped these uh, uh, publications carelessly and they call it a dump. But it was actually Julian that did, was doing the redacting and cared about it. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't the first one to publish the unredacted files. It was Cryptome. So uh, the government never went after Cryptone. So it wasn't the fact that they, they were published. It was an this is an isolated uh, uh, prosecution because if they prosecuted Julian for publishing it, they'd have to go after Cryptone, uh, New York Times. And let's remember, they all won awards off of Julian's material. Mm -hmm. so, he was a hero in the beginning. He was a, a media hero uh, uh, uncovering these war crimes. And then slowly over the years, you know, uh, he, he lost friends because he he pinned the deaths that happened in Iraq on each journalist. He mm -hmm. made a statement about that, that the media was responsible for pushing a war that was built on lies. And when he, he was outspoken like that and he made a lot of enemies because he called them out. He called them out on their inefficiency and their 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 ties to the government and like Mike said, just getting their talking points and their information straight from the CIA. 
not questioning, not investigating. And so he actually pinned the number of deaths per, you know, per journalist that spread the lies of the government. So you mentioned the CIA, this um, same document, again, for the listeners, all this information that we're going to link after the episode description is worth a look. It's going to be worth your time if you want to investigate more about um, this crusade against Julian Assange and his um, WikiLeaks. What, would it be considered a, a, a journalistic organization? Would that be a good way of describing it? Because I want to, I want to give it justice. Um, so he mentions the CIA numerous times, the FBI, the NSA, the ICC, the International Criminal Court. He talks about all this all these bodies and entities, but he talks a lot about how the United States in particular and the U.S. allies want to basically change the rules when it comes to foreign policy, um, how they're not tried for war crimes at the Hague, but and, and countries like Israel are sort of absolved of blame at all, but they like to throw the blame on countries like Iran. It, it, even now, the, the whole Russia-Ukraine situation it's scary. If you read the 2015 published um, book, The WikiLeaks Files, it talks all about the the Orange Revolution, all this stuff in Ukraine that was happening then. It's like people forgot that that stuff happened back in 2013, 2014, like there was no lead up at all. And he breaks it down so much. And I think that's what scares them so much is that it's so detailed and it implicates everyone that we've known in the government that's functioning in the government, Harry, Henry Kissinger, anybody that we've known that's had anything to do with the military industrial complex, he exposes every single one of those people in that book. Yeah. That's absolutely correct because the thing that made um, WikiLeaks so frightening is that he revealed things almost in real time. That's one of the, I think that was in uh, part in uh, Daniel Ellsberg's uh, witness testimony at the end of 2020. He said the thing that was really shocking about the WikiLeaks revelations and publications is that if they were revealed in a time when the people that committed those crimes could have been uh, prosecuted. It didn't happen 10 years or 20 years when everybody's dead. It almost happened in real time. And um, and also Julian showed, the WikiLeaks showed that these war crimes weren't just single acts. He showed that they were... Uh, systemic, that it was systematic. It was something that the U.S. government does, and it does all the time. It was part of, you know, our, our what war does. And uh, just the crimes against the people and the civilian cr uh, killings, where they would come to a stop where a little girl was begging for candy and that, and one guy got out of the tank and just blew her away. Mm -hmm. And Julie talks about that on Democracy Now!, the girl in the yellow dress just for random random crimes like that. And it was all revealed in these diaries and the logs. So it was the collateral murder, which was big with the helicopter, the Apache helicopter. And then there are all these small incidents that Daniel Ellsberg reported in his witness testimony that people don't think about. Just the thousands of crimes against people, you know, civilians. And they're trying to pin on Julian that he put people at risk and danger after they've killed millions mm -hmm. in the middle middle east yeah and just to add what on what uh, kiko said about uh revealing how the u.s 
plays by different rules or doesn't follow the rules. Merrick Garland recently took a trip to Ukraine where he was supposedly you know, documenting war crimes, but no one's ever been prosecuted for U.S. war crimes. You know, no one was ever prosecuted for the invasion of Iraq, mm. which was, you know, far more deadly and unprovoked than uh, anything in Ukraine right now. And in the American attorney general isn't concerned with prosecuting American war criminals. He's just, you know, making a show of going over to Ukraine. And then, of course, he's also concerned with prosecuting people like Assange and Manning, who revealed the actual war crimes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Susan, um, we're, we're kind of we're bouncing around, but I think we're consistent as long as we stick to Assange and related stuff. We're good. Sure. So, Susan, um, do Sounds you have anything stuff. to add? Well, um, we're hoping people will uh, contact our government and um, write the White House, write the uh, Attorney General. The easiest way to write the White House is online. You just go to whitehouse.gov slash contact. Mm -hmm. You can say whatever you want for your sons and tell them why you think they should. And... Um, you can go to uh, to talk to Merrick Garland. You can go to justice.gov slash contact dash us or else call them at 202-353-1555. And, um, you know, they must have gotten a lot of messages already, but uh, we mm -hmm. just need to keep them coming in. Uh, we're kind of excited that um, more news outlets are jumping on the bandwagon. The New York Times and The Guardian um, have been on record for a while as saying this prosecution is not the right thing. And then just uh, today, the Chicago Tribune came out with a really good op-ed that one of our people in the Julian Assange uh, National Committee wrote. And uh, I don't know, people just have to keep building it up and uh, mm -hmm. making there be a, a cost to them. When uh, President Biden went to see AMLO, the uh, president of Mexico, he, he brought it up. And, or maybe I guess AMLO came to, the, to Washington and he came with a letter and um, he has offered uh, Assange asylum and a couple of other countries, Chile and something, Paula, you know what. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it's just so horrible. And the thing that breaks my heart is Bernie Sanders was on the way to winning the presidential election mm -hmm. and the DNC absolutely undercut him For sure. at least and possibly just you know, found a way to have the votes not counted right. Mm -hmm. But um, at least they did all they could to keep him from being elected. And I'm sure he would not be going along with the Trump prosecution of Julian Assange. So um, but I, we, have to, we have to remember that the prosecution isn't about the DNC leaks, that it really is the war logs and the, <laughs> the, the state cables, the diplomatic state cables, which embarrassed a lot of top uh, states persons. That was, I think they were really angered by that. They were especially angered by Vault 7 that isn't part of the prosecution, but is really what got um, Mike Pompeo to um, actually uncover the uh, 
the indictment and actually set out to prosecute him. And another th point I want to make is people have to remember that all the international awards that Julian won, and there are dozens, he won peace prizes and just the highest international awards, awards avail, uh, out there. And that those same documents he won the awards for are the same documents that he's being prosecuted for. And that in itself is uh, a huge red flag. And I would like to go over the red flags at some point too, all the irregularities in the case that just are crazy. I mean, it's um, so before we close the program, Kiko, I would like to try to you know, uncover some of them because there's kind of a long list and and then Mike, I'd like Mike to talk about the Espionage Act, which is crazy in itself because he's a he's he's got that down pretty well. Absolutely. I was actually going to say I wanted to kind of um I didn't the one thing about about it, I kind of wanted a well-rounded that I think we're getting that. I didn't want to focus just on Julian's situation. Because we know that he's going through so much. He has gone through so much. And I just didn't want it to be all about um, his dire straits situation in the Ecuadorian embassy. I didn't want it to be all about Belmarsh. I didn't want it to be all about that. I wanted the audience to kind of see his value and his company's value, which we've done a good job, I think, of, of sort of exposing and showing people. But I do want the audience to more or less know the potency of the Boston area when it comes to advocating Assange-related um, issues, it seems like there's a strong base in Boston. And what are y'all doing on the ground to, to bring awareness to the people um, in the, the greater Boston area and surrounding areas when it comes to Assange? And maybe we can talk a little bit about the October 8th activity coming up. And then we can talk more about the Espionage Act and, and even the Ball 7 stuff that you mentioned. And, and we want to go through those irregularities that uh, mm -hmm. Paul is talking about. But we, we have a uh, public uh, standout every uh, three weeks. Now we were doing two weeks for a while. And um, uh, so our next one is going to be on the 3rd of October at Park Street Station at 11 o'clock. And um, we always invite the press. Uh, they don't really come. Uh, very often, sometimes a student paper will come, or uh, but we still think something is going across their desk. They hear about Julian Assange every mm -hmm. two or three weeks, and we hope that's something. And uh, we, at the uh, standouts, we hand out literature which says, you know, call this and that person and gives a little rundown of the case. And um, so we hope we're planting seeds in people's minds. Um, we have a petition we get people to sign. We encourage them to write letters. And sometimes we have letters for them to sign there to Merrick Garland. But we, um, yeah, we wish we could do more. It's a little frustrating. It's wonderful to be on your uh, program, Kiko, and mm -hmm. it's a nice way to get the word out um, sometimes, you know, most of the people who walk by us at Park Street Station uh, do their best to ignore us. And uh, a few people come over and we get thumbs up from some, but uh, uh, we need to get the word out there more. Well, that's how we met Mike. You know, it's mm -hmm. it can be kind of like frustrating. You wonder what kind of impact you may make. And then Mike came to one of our, I think it was a summer rally and 
Then we heard from him, by the way, Merrick Garland's going to be commencement speaker at the end of May. We <laughs> wouldn't have known that. We would absolutely not have been aware of that had Mike not brought, brought that to a, our attention. And he asked us to co-organize with that. And so that those little visibilities that we're doing on, on the corner in Boston, we meet people like Mike. Uh, met, we met someone from Philadelphia who's going to go home and he's starting his own uh, group, Assange group there. Mm -hmm. So that's because Susan and I are showing up regularly on the streets of Boston. You don't know, like she said, who you're going to meet and where it's going to take you. And, you know, we have Mike to thank for that awesome visibility we did um, at the end of May. Harvard, yeah. Harvard, Harvard Square. That was great. I did have a question from Mike in this regards. So you don't have to implicate people, but you definitely stood out because I found out about you all through the LA Progressive article that I read. And then I saw the Assange Boston site. I looked at that some, and that's how I reached out to Paula. And she was a little surprised at first, like, how did he find out who I was? And But but I'm a researcher for a living, so I really try to take the time to look into stuff. But I want to ask you, how is the reception of Mike when it comes to people do you associate with do these people know about Julian Assange, like, or, or are you just like on an island when it comes to trying to bring this stuff to people's attention? Um, well, I find that I guess people in some of these activist spaces on campus are, I guess, receptive to uh, Julian Assange and his uh, fight for freedom and the fight for a free press. But like you said, a lot of people aren't really aware of his case or, you know, hardly even know who he is. And these are people even who are, you know, involved in uh, progressive activism, mm -hmm. uh, not just, um, you know, not just any ordinary person. So I think that a lot of the battle is uphill because uh, I guess there's been so little coverage um, of his case. Uh, not enough attention has been uh, I guess directed against it in the media, especially considering you know what a threat this poses to anyone in the media who's interested in doing any kind of investigative journalism. So yeah, I find that uh, I guess people can be receptive, but uh, not enough people uh, are familiar with the case. We're talking about First Amendment violations. We're talking about illegality. Period. When, when we speak of the Espionage Act, which is actually crazy, that, like Paula was saying, Julian Assange is Australian. We're charging an Australian under a crime, a, a crime he basically reported on things that he observed and, and got from other people, what a journalist does, like, at least that's what I thought a journalist does. And he's getting charged for, for doing a job, basically for uncovering the truth, for being a truth teller, he gets in trouble for that. Um, what what exactly is the Espionage Act? Is that from is that from 1917, if I'm not mistaken? Like what exactly is the Espionage Act and, and what could be the implications of Julian's situation? Yeah, the Espionage Act was written in 1917 uh, during the World War One period. And if you look at the text of the bill, uh, it seems like it's intended for people who are like trying to actually undermine mil like military battles. It 
all of the languages, uh, if you look at it, is about, you know, someone who's trying to, like, actually give battle information on the United States to other countries in order to try and, like, you know, help some other side win the battle as if they were, like, a legitimate spy. But if you look at the way that the Espionage Act has been used through history, it's actually been used really to crack down on all different types of dissent. Like during World War One, people who were distributing flyers against the draft, advocating that the U.S. not get involved in World War One, they were arrested under the Espionage Act. Journalists um, and uh, people who uh, where Congress people even were arrested for advocating against World War One, um, all sorts of you know socialists like Eugene Debs uh, was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. So, um, and then if you look at the more modern history, people like Daniel Ellsberg uh, initially was prosecuted under the Espionage Act before um, his trial was eventually thrown out because uh, it was I guess declared a mistrial because. The U.S. government was caught trying to break into a psychiatrist's office uh, and dig up dirt on him. And then uh, President Obama really ramped up a lot of the prosecutions under the Espionage Act um, in uh, the modern era. And he prosecuted more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than all previous presidents combined in the United wow. States. So it's really kind of what seems to be intended originally for you know spies that were trying to you know specifically undermine the u.s and military battles is now being used to prosecute journalists for publishing information and, and you know the u.s's interpretation of the act is you know one of the most extreme possible which is that by publishing evidence of crimes and corruption uh, of a government that that is equivalent to intentionally trying to harm the united states and you know aid a foreign enemy uh, as if it were like a battle for war so uh if julian assange is extradited under this espionage act this would threaten any journalist who does national report uh who does national security reporting reporting on foreign policy and investigative journalism where they're dealing with uh leaked documents which has always been something that journalists have done yeah, and one of the really terrible things about the Espionage Act is it specifically disallows any testimony about why a person did the thing that was against the law. They can't say, mm. I was trying to save lives by showing this and stopping the war. No, no, no. If you release it and it was classified, you're guilty, and that's the end of the story. No necessity defense, as they call it. But we want to get into some of these uh, terrible things about the Yes, no doubt. Um, trial. I wanted I want to hear about the trial and um I also wanted a clarification on what Vault Seven is so the audience can know what that is regarding Pompeo. Kiko, could I backtrack on the Espionage Act for just you a sure second? Can? Mm -hmm. So the I just want to uh, bring people up to date on that. The really positive things that, that are closely related to Julian. Um, is that there's uh, now Espionage Act reform going through the government right now. 
Uh, Representative Talib did one, I forget, uh, earlier in the year. Now, currently, we, uh, I think in July, there's bipartisan uh, bill to reform it. And like Mike was talking about it being an uh, originally uh, a, a, an act, a bill that would uh, prosecute spies. Now it's uh, spread out. It includes our truth tellers and journalists. So they're trying to rein it in and um, bring it back to spies only. And that would be um, uh, Rokana, uh, Thomas Massey, and Ron Wyden who okay. are sponsoring that bill. And so there is hope, at least there's some kind of movement feeling like people want to rein it in. I know Senator Warren is working on a bill uh, that uh, is asking for more transparency. And that has exactly what to do with Julian. I mean, that it was WikiLeaks was all about transparency. Mm -hmm. So if Senator Warren and others are supporting bills um, that are want more transparency, we, they want to be told the cost of war, um, then this all has to do with Julian Assange's freedom. So that the work on the Espionage Act to to dismantle it is encouraging. Yes, it is. I didn't know. I didn't even know about those developments. So I appreciate you bringing it um, to light. Absolutely. So y'all are going to talk a little bit about the case against Assange and go into some of the details of that. And um, Again, I hope the audience is kind of getting a build up um, to the whole situation, which we'll probably get to. But I really want them, I guess, in the closing to definitely acknowledge and see what he is going through currently as well. Um, what we got from as far as the Ecuadorian embassy until the situation he's right now in in a high security prison in England. Um, but let's talk about the actual case um and some of the fouls against him when when did the first revving up against the sun start that led to this point that we're talking about now yeah i guess we'd have to go back to 2010 when uh the original uh i think it was when the iraq war logs and the afghan diaries came out and um assange was in sweden at the time and so uh, I guess secretly the United States had begun drafting uh, a sealed indictment against Assange um, using the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which uh, they were accusing him of conspiring with Chelsea Manning uh, to hack into government computers. But Chelsea Manning already had access to all of the files that she gave to Assange before she even contacted him. The only thing that Assange did was he uh, attempted unsuccessfully to help Manning maintain her anonymity when giving him the files, which is standard procedure for mm -hmm. any investigative journalist. Um, so that was when Assange was still in Sweden. And then uh, at the time when Assange was in Sweden, uh, I guess the U.S. government was... Um, uh, talking to the Swedish government and trying to entrap uh, Assange uh, in a separate uh, prosecution uh, for alleged, I guess, sex crimes, which the case has kind of fallen apart since, if you'd want to go into that later. But um, so Sweden was collaborating with the United States government. And so once Assange was uh, had traveled to the UK, 
um, Sweden tried to extradite Assange back to Sweden for questioning, um, but Assange wanted a guarantee that he would not be extradited then to the United States if he went to Sweden for questioning, but neither the United States nor Sweden was willing to provide him with that guarantee. So that's when he sought uh, he sought refuge in the Ecuadorian uh, embassy, and he eventually uh, became an Ecuadorian citizen. But he was uh, kind of trapped there in the London embassy for Ecuador for seven years um, before he was eventually kicked out in 2019. And uh, the, the London police stormed into the Ecuadorian embassy and arrested him. Incredible. Against international law. He, uh, Julian had political asylum and the pe uh, people are very, very, that was very concern concerning because it makes all, it makes it shaky ground for all political asylees uh, in, uh, that have refuge that they can storm in and drag you out. What are some of the details of the case? Because this is something that I'm going to be taking notes when you guys tell me about this stuff, because this is one of the areas where I don't know a lot about what's going on. So can we speak specifically to the case itself? Uh, well, I guess um, Assange has been in Belmarsh prison since 2019 when he was dragged out of the embassy. And Belmarsh prison is uh, known as the Guantanamo of London because it's where all of the, I guess, most violent and dangerous criminals are kept like, you know, uh, terrorists and uh, murderers and everything. And so um, since 2019, he's been kept there. And the process has really just been dragging out for years. He was, the initial uh, ruling of the case was that he could not be extradited to the United States because his life would be in jeopardy in a U.S. security, uh, and in a U.S. maximum security prison. And they thought that he would, uh, I guess, commit suicide and that his life was in danger. And so then the U.S. government appealed that case and it went up to the high court and they reversed that case because they said the U.S. gave assurances that um, that he would that they would have, I guess, safe conditions for him, which is pretty questionable, considering the fact that it's been revealed that the CIA already had plots to assassinate him when he was still in the Ecuadorian embassy. So uh, I guess that's the that's the government that they're trusting to keep him in safe hands. But uh, so after that, it was overturned in the high court. And then uh, Assange tried to appeal that to the Supreme Court in the UK. Um, but the Supreme Court wouldn't hear it. They denied that. And so then it went to the Home Secretary, Priti Patel of the UK, um, who signed off on his extradition. But then Assange has appealed that uh, ruling. And so it's still tied up in the in the courts in the UK. Awesome. So again, the point of this is that I know some of this is reiteration. The audience can't get too much information because they've been bombarded with complete opposite narratives of what we're saying in a lot of these situations, even publications like the Atlantic, um, that a lot of my friends look up to just complete smear pieces against Assange. So let's um, get into some of those smear pieces and misinformation um, angles towards Assange. 
what would be some of the biggest um, smears and misinformation pieces towards Assange, Susan or Paula can address that issue? Well, they had this crazy um, situation where uh, some women went to the police and said they had concerns, they wanted Assange to take a HIV test. They never said that he assaulted them and the police turned it into an assault uh, allegation. One of the women said they just wanted to get their hands on him. And so it seems like the Swedish government and the US were just working to find something to pin on him. And then a lot of people hold against him the fact that he released the um, emails that the DNC was uh, sending around where they were conspiring against Bernie Sanders. And um, when people say, well, why did he do that? I tell them, well, why did the DNC try to steal the election from Bernie Sanders? Mm -hmm. There's one that have something to explain um, what Assange released was true. And who knows how much it had to do with the uh, results of the election, but um, mm -hmm. it was true. So, you know, when Ellsberg was in trouble for releasing the Pentagon Papers and Nixon's people went in and tried to find dirt from his uh, psychiatrist's office, the court, the case was dismissed. And now uh, Assange is in trouble and the CIA tries to kill him. And wouldn't you think that would be a reason to dismiss the case? Exactly. Absolutely. And there was also um, the security uh, firm that was at the embassy, UC Global. They were giving information to uh, the court in the US that would hear the case when it comes. That's highly irregular. Mm -hmm. And then they were also searching the phones and uh, spying on all of the visitors, the lawyers and other people who came to visit Assange, and some of them are now doing a lawsuit against the CIA and Mike Pompeo and um, the security firm. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that comes out. It seems like the, uh, the media is a little bit more willing to cover that case than they are the, the whole case against Assange. And mm. so we'll see uh, what comes of that. Yes, Paula, is there anything you want to add to this or, or something you want to speak to regarding the songs? Well, I'd like in regard to what Susan just said about um, blaming Assange for the timing on the release of the, the uh, Podesta emails and that. Mm -hmm. If you go to WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks has a really interesting uh, about section. They have a mission statement. It is a serious, serious uh, publication and with uh, deep morals i mean and principled it there it's a very very julian assange is a very principled person and the organization is principled and i just want to read something it says wikileaks promise to each whistleblower is complete anonymity and once the leaked documents were thoroughly vetted wikileaks promised to broadcast their leaks to the world it is a falsehood that wikileaks picked through leaks choosing what to publish and what not to publish Assange did not choose to publish the DNC leaks. 
it was his obligation to the whistleblower to do so. So there's a contract between WikiLeaks and the whistleblower. They say, yes, if your leaks prove to be accurate and they're thoroughly vetted, we will get them willy-nilly like they make it sound like, you know, he goes through and decides for political reasons what he's going to target with his, uh, you know, email release um, or his leaked document release, it's an obligation that he ha feels he has to the whistleblower. Yeah, good point. I want to give the uh, national uh, website address, which is assangedefense.org. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have a section on there with the different uh, groups who are listed on there with our contact. And uh, you can get lots of good information. And also they have an action page of things to do. And I encourage you to look at that, Assange Defense, A-S-S-A-N-G-E, defense.org. Thank you. I'm going to include all these links in the description, everything that I can possibly. Um, again, mm -hmm. I'm one of those type of people, I don't believe that you can read too much, watch too much. Um, my parents raised me that way to sort of be a free thinker, <laughs> not to give myself a plug. But, I mean, I guess it was appropriate to come up with that title. Um, is there something else? I did want to mention um, some of the positivity and the global support um, for Assange, because there is a lot of people that, that are keeping close eyes on, on these developments. Um, is that something that you all feel that we maybe didn't talk about enough or something that you all want to bring up now in this closing um, five to ten minutes? If, if so, is there something you all can think of? Well, Paula, uh, why don't you tell us about October 8th? Or uh, let Mike go, and then I before October 8th, I have another little thing to say. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, Kiko, you mentioned that there's a lot of international support for Assange, which there is. And one other thing that uh, I noticed when we were organizing uh, our demonstration against Garland was that there was a lot of worker support for Assange. We had supporters from the Harvard University uh, Dining Hall Union uh, out there uh, supporting Assange because they realized how important it was to protect whistleblowers and people uh, who report abuse, um, I guess, as workers who see lots of abuse themselves from the university uh, and who are always fighting for better working conditions and uh, fighting for contracts. They understand how important it is to protect someone like Assange who uh, reveals all of that different types of those different types of abuse and corruption. So we had a, a lot of worker support there. Um, and then I guess one other point I wanted to add, as Paula mentioned earlier, that uh, the current extradition against Assange is uh, just regarding um, what Chelsea Manning uh, gave to Assange about Iraq and Afghanistan, and that it's a misconception um, that Assange is being prosecuted for anything to do with uh, the DNC or Russia. But there actually was um, a lawsuit against Assange by the DNC several years ago, uh, trying to prosecute him in a in a civil court in New York for uh, disclosing DNC emails. And the judge threw that case out because he said it was just, it would have been a violation of the first amendment and that, yeah. you know, and that publishing 
documents that have been stolen is just what journalists do. And that would be a threat to any journalist. So um, uh, regarding the, the DNC, yeah, it's important to note that that had already been uh, determined in a civil court that there was nothing the DNC could do to to prosecute Assange because his work was just standard journalism. Do you all want to um, close it, the October 8th event, just for the listeners? This is going to be a, a pretty big event in D.C. And I know that there are other areas around the world that have their own Assange rallies and, and protests going on as well. But can we speak a little bit more to the October 8th event, too? Uh, we can. I... I, I hate to backtrack, but you know, it's a no, 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 backtrack as much as possible. Okay, there's a just a little <laughs> bit of cleanup on uh, the red flags and the the irregularities of the case, and one of the big ones is that the key uh, U.S. prosecution's key witness recanted his testimony, so they're um, they were trying to pin hacking on him, and the only um, the witness they had was Siggy Sigador uh, Tordarson. And he was, he's a convicted fraudster and pedophile. And that was the U.S. prosecution's key witness in the case. Mm -hmm. And he did recant, he recanted his testimony. He, he said the FBI uh, granted him immunity if he would do that. And right now he was arrested in South America somewhere and he's serving time in Iceland. So that I want everyone to know is the U.S. prosecution's key witness. Mm. against Julian Assange because they haven't been able to prove anything else and they're just trying to get him on the hacking charge so I didn't want to mention that and also you know people can go really in the weeds about the uh, the the Swedish uh, investigation and so many things but I always say all you have to do is listen to the watchdogs mm -hmm. the watchdogs in the United States are the human rights organizations it's amnesty it's as aclu it's the press freedom groups it's the united nations and i want to remind people or educate people that there were two un reports it's in 2015 and 2019 the united nations working group of arbitrary detention that came out and said the red flag on the Swedish case is that it dragged on forever. And that told them that it was a political uh, motivated thing and that Julian Assange needed to be released immediately and fully comp compensated. And the same group came out again in 2019 to reiterate what they uh, their decision in 2015. The other one was the UN special torture rapporteur, Nils Meltzer, Mm -hmm. who wrote a book on uh, Julian Assange. It's really quite the Bible, because if anyone wants to read about the Swedish case, you, you can learn uh, all about it from Nils Meltzer, because he speaks uh, fluently five languages. And so he's able to look at all the emails, all the documentation on the Swedish investigation. And so he's such a great source. So ha here we have all these brilliant voices, the watchdogs, uh, ACLU, Amnesty. They formed a coalition uh, of dozens of civil liberties groups. They wrote letters to Biden, wrote two letters to Mar Merrick Garland, and it's all disregarded. So the watchdogs are to keep the United States accountable for its actions, but they are disregarded. So that tells everything about the case. Here you have all the watchdogs trying to free Julian Assange, 
Assange, and the government ignores any of the reports that are given to them. So right now we have no one, nothing to hold the government in account. We don't have a free press and we don't have watchdogs that actually have some kind of teeth to make to, to turn this injustice, uh, you know, turn it right. Yeah. And that's, um, and that's a scary situation. Um, I, I have a question actually, but before we do um, have any concluding words um, for people who have been following Assange for a while, for people who took a lot from this interview with the three of you all, what what exactly is the Vault 7? That is my question that I had before I forget it. That That's the question I have. What exactly is Vault 7? Because I heard that reference earlier. And um, I think it has to do with Pompeo, but I don't know the details about it. Uh, I guess Vault 7 was, um, was some leaks that WikiLeaks uh, put out regarding um, the CIA and a lot of their... Um, cyber warfare uh tools and protocols and that was when mike pompeo was uh at the time the head of the cia before uh he became secretary of state and so that happened while mike pompeo was in charge and then uh he was one of the biggest cheerleaders for assange's prosecution and extradition uh when he was in the Trump administration after that. So I guess um, that that probably was one of the things that really uh, irritated Pompeo the most uh, about the Assange case. I, I find it very odd that um, I get a lot of different persuasions. And I think we've done a good job not really throwing the political um, stuff in. I mean, it is inherently political. But the fact that we're presenting information, kind of letting people draw their own conclusions, I think is really important because um, something that Susan mentioned earlier about just being on the streets and just so many people ignoring you, being oblivious to what's going on. And these are the types of people that I associate with, that I'm friends with. Um, I'm very much a left libertarian minded person. And so I, I know a lot about these types of issues and um, and a lot of the people that hang with me and associate with me, we share views, but we just, we have political differences. We go different ways that politically we don't vote the same people. And um, it, it kind of bothers me that those people in an area like Boston, it kind of, doesn't it kind of negate the, progressive um, angle that these people claim to have when you would think that that would be such a bastion of, of, of hope for people just coming out in droves to support Assange. Why is it that it's still just maybe 100 people here, 100 people there, and not 55 to 100,000 people um, with you? It's just, to me, that's very disturbing that these progressive-minded people are choosing to sidestep the Assange situation. Well, the peace rallies have small numbers too. <laughs> these mm. days. But yeah, I wish I had a good answer. Um, it seems so obviously important and shocking and desperate and urgent uh, to me. And then a lot of people are just not thinking about that kind of thing. I honestly believe it would bring 
if if Julian was granted justice, the justice that he deserved, I believe that this would be a uniting cry for the country. Um, I hear people, I have some Trump associates, and they say that they care about Assange. I'm saying to myself, do you realize, you know, what that administration did to him and, and what the current one is doing to him? And so I'm trying to get all my friends together and think, what would be the implications if Julian does get free? How would people change their minds about these sorts of issues going forward with free speech and First Amendment? Because if he's ultimately um, not given justice, we don't really have a going back in time to honest journalism. I mean, that, there's never going to be another WikiLeaks, in my opinion, if he doesn't get his justice. Do you all have any concluding words? Um as far as um, getting the message out for him, um, just as far as the interview is concerned, things that are going to happen after October the 8th. So two minutes for each person before we conclude. Are we talking about October 8th now, or are we talking? No, we're talking um, um, October the 8th and beyond. Um, after that event, is there anything else planned? And sort of just any closing remarks that you have? Yeah, it's it's a little frustrating that there aren't more people in the streets about this. I when I when we talk about that, I always think of, of the current uh WikiLeaks uh editor in chief, Kristen Harofson, who says uh at a lot of rallies, he says, People ask me, why should I fight for Julian when we have climate change and this and that and fight for uh you know uh, fair wages? And he says because if we don't have free press, if we don't have free speech, if our if we are silenced, we can't fight for anything. Mm-hmm. And and I think it has to be triggered in some way where it connects to you. Like Mike was talking about the union workers. Um, union workers need a Dropbox. They need some safe place to put their complaints because it's not going to be dealt with when you go to the people, the administration, and. We have in October 8th uh, in Washington, D.C., I'm helping organize that. It's a marathon, speak, speaker-a-thon, I'm calling it, because we have <laughs> 20 speakers. And there are such interesting people. They're not usually the same. They're not the same usual supporters. Um, we have journalists. We have Chris Hedges. We have uh, human rights uh, lawyer, Stephen Donziger, who's going to be there. Mm-hmm. We have Eliza Blue that I didn't know much about. She's a human trafficking survivor and advocate. And it clicked for her. She said, I can't advocate for the people and the children that need um, need help if I do, if we don't have a free press. So she's coming down and speaking. And she wrote a beautiful article, a uh, personal article about free press and got several quotes. So I think something has to trigger that it applies to you and the life, the, the things that are important to you. And it's a slow movement, but I, we, we're seeing momentum and more and people, more mm-hmm. and more people getting on board with this. So I hope everybody turns out to October 8th. It's at noon, uh, 12 o'clock to three o'clock. We're gonna circle the best we can, the, the Department of Justice using a yellow ribbon that I'm working on. And so we're going to circle the DOJ and in solidarity to Julian Assange's wife, who has a, the um, a circle, the parliament event, where they actually have 4,000 people joining hands to circle the parliament. 
So it's a, a and there are other global, there's several, several uh, global events happening the same day. So thank you, Kiko, for having us on. Absolutely. And I did tell a lie before we go to Mike and Susie. I do have uh, another question, but um, I do, I have two questions. Is this going to be something that people who can't be in DC physically, can they watch it streaming somewhere? Is there going to be a main channel for that? I, th I think it's going to go out on several platforms. That always comes together last minute. Unfor you know how that goes. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, we've set up a nice sound system and we're going to have, um, uh, the tough thing is we're going to be competing with another event the same day, which is the Women's March. Oh, wow. Uh, it's going to be huge. It's going to be thousands, probably, I don't know how many thousands of people in the street for that, that, they're organizing and marching that same day. So they're going to be drawing all the mainstream media away from us if there were to be any. And even the independent media is, is um, going to be hard to attract. But we'll do the best. We have lots of people organizing. We have Roar Media. Um, a consortium News will help us. And so a lot of media people are joining um, in the organizing which is really nice. It's been a great organizing experience because there's so many of us from different parts of the country and who are flying out to make this happen. So yeah, so when we get closer to the date, we'll broadcast where it's it can be seen. Awesome. Well, I just hope everybody can join us in this. Um, it's so important. We have to get Julian Assange out. Uh, he could die any day. Yeah. He had a, a stroke uh, in... October, as he was watching the U.S. appeal the decision to let him go, and um, he's just uh, getting weaker by the week. Um, it's going to be a terrible thing if he dies in prison, and uh, we just have to get him out. Yeah, um, I guess there. As Paula mentioned, there are demonstrations going on in the UK, just like there are here in the US. But I think probably uh, our best avenue right now is to just try and advocate that either Merrick Garland drop all of the DOJ's charges against him or that Joe Biden issue a pardon for him, both of which would uh, end the proceedings immediately. But um yeah, it's important to remember this isn't just about Julian Assange, but it's about the U.S. government uh, making an example of him and sending a message against anyone who's, you know, thinking about uh, exposing their crimes and their corruption and their uh, foreign policy agenda uh, just to stay silent because um, they're making if uh, they can prosecute Assange. Uh, for his uh for his leaks and for his journalism then they can prosecute uh anyone they really want to uh who exposes the government and they can go after any journalistic outlets they want so uh it's much bigger than just uh one person it's about uh, the future of of the free press in the u.s absolutely i have one final question and then i'm going to ask where people can find you all um, after they hear this very interesting and informative conversation, if they want to reach out to you directly to maybe have a question to you. Um, the question that I had, the concluding question, 
was how is WikiLeaks able to sustain itself right now? Because I think it's still current. The status of it is still current. So how is WikiLeaks able to survive right now, um, even though its founder is in the situation that he's in right now? Well, it's a real organization. It's not just him. Mm -hmm. He's the charismatic uh, founder and very important to the organization, but they are still releasing information and uh, carrying on mm -hmm. and working in his on his behalf to try to get him out along with the rest of the movement. That's well, awesome. We probably know more about what they're doing. Yeah, I think you can, you know, go to wikileaks.org and uh, contribute to them. That's probably how they are able to uh, sustain themselves, or at least that's a part of it, yeah. How do people reach you all um, with their questions and stuff? If, if you all are comfortable disclosing any information that you want to, to my audience? Well, people uh, could call me at 617-501-9125, or they can write Susan B. M. C. L. at Gmail. And I'll, I'll be happy to hear from any people who have questions or want to join us or want to tell us whatever they want to tell us. Thank you so much. Paula? Yeah, and I can be reached. Uh, um, unfortunately, we don't have a website, but you can reach me at assangeboston at gmail.com. Um, the National Committee is... Um, uh, assangedefense.org and that has uh, ways to take action they have a wonderful take action page um, and uh, I I tell people to follow Stella Morris's Twitter page uh, that's Julian Assange's uh, wife and partner uh, and mother of their two children <clears throat> her Twitter page is up to date as far as everything that's going on she tweets all the events and all the awards he's winning and all the updates and um, and so those are the two I would check Stella Morris's Twitter page and AssangeDefense.org uh, they do a good job on keeping their uh, everything updated thank you um yeah, I guess anyone can email me at M-I-C-C-I-O-L-I at uchicago.edu. Thank you all so much. Again, I can't tell you how happy I am to, to be able to have had this conversation and just um, really stick to the information. This podcast is really about uh, disseminating truthful information, not so much into personalities and, and trying to find as many clicks. I mean, we do appreciate getting clicks and listens and watches, but that's not my primary objective um, because I am a professor in my actual um, personal life. And I want to kind of do this stuff outside of academia because I was telling Paul on the phone that academia, I feel like it's tying me down and it's trying to keep me conformed in this box. And, and I know a lot of my colleagues have things to say too, but they're too afraid to speak up against um, the university um, I guess it's a firewall, I call it that. And um, and I'm, I'm just tired of it. I don't know if I can keep um, being in education and, and just hide who I am and ignore these types of issues. And so that's why I created the forum in the first place out of frustration um, within the academic establishment. And I hope that everyday working class people, people who aren't associated with the university can get the benefit of this information as well. Um, 
we can be reached at any of the major podcasting platforms. Um, we do have our YouTube channel back up. We appreciate any uh, financial support. We don't tout it a whole lot. Maybe I should. I don't know. But the links are on there. If people do want to um, keep these guests and, you know, just to help with technology and stuff like that, logistical information. But um, we do have next week a renowned sociologist from Australia. She's actually the most um, famous sociologist in Australia. Her name is Ray Raywan Connell, and she's published over 20 books. And we're going to talk um, 8 p.m. my time, 12 p.m. Sydney time, because they're having a, a time change next week, um, daylight savings time. They're going into the summer. And so we have a bunch of unbelievable guests coming up. Down the road, John Stasevich is also going to be at the rally that you all mentioned, October the 8th. Um, he was on my podcast a few episodes ago. So um, we try to get activist-minded people, um, third-party, independent-minded people to sort of combat all these different narratives that we get all the time. And so, again, I appreciate you all's time uh, speaking to this very um, important issue. This is probably one of the more serious episodes, but, um, you know, these episodes are supposed to be impactful. I want them to be impactful. And so hopefully people take the information and they can spread it to friends and family alike. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Kiko.